Welcome to COVID Lawcast. Today we have Deborah Catalano from Liberty Council, and we're going to explore her background and how Liberty Council came to be and some of the current cases that are going on. So, Deborah, would you introduce yourself to our audience here? Yes. Good morning. Happy Friday to all. I am a lawyer here at Liberty Council. I've got a role of doing primarily non litigation. I field the intake forms for the legal help requests we get throughout the country. I try to involve our affiliate attorneys throughout the country. Um, presently, we've got a lot of nursing students with clinical issues, dental students, pediatric, res a lot of residents are calling us. In addition to that, we've got a lot of just students at different universities throughout the country who are trying to exercise their right to not be vaccinated in order to go to school and trying to work out whatever compromise we can with the facilities, depending on what state they're in. I got one this morning, which was a little surprising. It's actually a pediatric resident in Texas who has to be vaccinated. And in light of the governor's order that came out a year ago, that's a little perplexing. So maybe, and it's at University of Texas in San, San Antonio. So it's a little surprising in depending what state you're in, you know, the kinds of questions you're getting since Tennessee has a statute on this, Texas has an executive order. But beyond that, I do some work with our transplant patients, or I should say clients. And those are people who wanted to not have to take the COVID vaccine in order to remain on a organ transplant waiting list or to get on an organ transplant waiting list. So that's pretty much the bulk of what I do here. But beyond that, we are a religious freedom, religious liberties nonprofit. And Matt and Anita Staver founded us about 30 years ago. And they've done some great work over that period of time, uh, protecting the freedom of fellow Americans and citizens and residents of this country. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting to me. I, I, you know, I'm, I don't come from a very religious background. I'm not a regular church goer, I confess, but I've undergone some changes because I really felt compelled to step up. And initially I just saw the, you know, the government abuses with the shutdowns, but then I, you know, with this vaccine and the way it's been pushed, so-called vaccine, I mean, I felt like there was evil afoot in the world at that point. And, yeah. you know, and I've seen too much damage to, to think anything else. And, and so it's interesting that, you know, me as sort of a non-religious guy sort of feels shoved by God into the fight. <laughs> and, and one of the things that I have been thinking about is the fact that our religious freedoms, and, and I think people need to know this, the, they're really broad. It's really freedom of belief. Mm -hmm. freedom of thought yes. and and you know the cases what what is it the torcaso case from the 60s mm -hmm. it really says that it's if you have a sincerely held belief whatever it may be mm -hmm. you have a right to have that belief and and behave consistent with that belief or in a sincere way consistent with that belief right. and i am really of the thought now that that protection in our constitution is actually what's saving us now. Well, and that's what created us. Uh, so when you think about what the people who were, in, and we don't have to get into a history lesson here, because I know that there's disagreement about the rationale or the reason this country was founded, but you can see 
that this was about the exercise of control over your own life. And it doesn't matter. There is just, just should not be a state sanctioned religion. So the way I look at it now is the what Matt and Anita started 30 years ago, and there's some great other you know, nonprofits across the country protecting religious freedom. It isn't just about Christians, it's religious freedom. And if if some if a Muslim person can't adhere to their own belief in the ways that we've created laws to protect, then we're all not safe or or none of us is safe. And so that really is the issue. So you don't have to be a Christian to avail yourselves of protection at Liberty Council. You have to be someone exercising a sincerely held religious belief. Now there's certain ones that would not, uh, we would not agree with the, it would not fulfill our core mission. Right. So obviously there'd be have to some vetting, but we've represented people of different faiths who want to simply exercise their right to be a person of faith. So, and, and, and just for the audience, and I don't know that everybody knows this, but I mean, the courts have literally held that possibly veganism or vegetarianism is a system of belief that's protected under the First Amendment. So it's very, very broad. It's very broad. And in these cases with the vaccine mandates, some of the objections we've seen in the transplant realm has been, you know, the argument over what is a defined religion. Well, the facility doesn't get the right to have this discussion. This is above their pay grade, but they don't realize that because, you know, schools are from K one through 12, and then universities are so used to being the thought police as to what is an acceptable or tolerated viewpoint that we are, you know, that, that, that we're training a, a segment of the population to behave in ways that are inconsistent with who we say we are as a people. Now, back to your point as to what has happened in the last 18 months, I started out as an employment lawyer. I represented businesses. And so I never, I have never held the government. I've never had the view that the government was a partner to my clients <laughs> in the OSHA realm, in the wage and hour realm, in the EEOC realm. So as, as a person who represented organizations for over 20 years, when the government came calling, it was never usually a good thing. And I'm surprised at the lack of skepticism by people and institutions at this point. So when the CDC came out and wanted to have a discussion about the science of COVID that was premature and not based on objective data, that the CDC even weighed in and somehow the medical community wanted to say that this was gospel. That, that is a dereliction of duty. And in a role as an advisor to organizations in my past life, I would never tell an employer just because the EEOC came out with an opinion on something that makes it law. It does not. The government has limited powers. We apparently have forgotten that, or maybe we no longer teach that. <laughs> well, that's a really the astounding thing that I've seen, you know, is that now employers and of course our healthcare system is inquiring into our beliefs. Yes. I mean, this is a sacrosanct right. Well, since when does an employer get to grill an employee about? whether, first of all, about whatever their beliefs are, and then secondly, whether they're sincere or not, and mm -hmm. question it and have any basis to define 
like you said, what is a religion? I mean, you want to, you really want to go down that pathway, employer or hospital right. or medical? And, and every one of those questions would actually implicate what we used to refer to as an EEO policy. Now it's, you know, there's DEI and there's different acronyms used for these policies where employers are now saying, we want to promote certain beliefs and we're going to actually minimize other beliefs. Well, that implicates a choice. That, that implicates a, they're taking a poll because they're trying to see which way the wind is blowing and which one politically that the country wants to tolerate. And what used to be something that I would say to an employer, you can't have this discussion. You can't weigh in on this, whether it's a Christmas tree, a Hanukkah bush, whatever it is around a holiday, you have to promote it all. You have to permit it all. And you don't get to pick winners and losers. What I see the interesting thing happening is on the COVID front, you put this where the people have asserted their right to not be vaccinated. And now they're going to be singled out and there's going to be a hostile work environment claim. Now, certainly the the charges, the EEOC charges, that's going to be, I'm not sure how acceptable that's going to be viewed by the EEOC, but at the end of the day, when an employer says, I don't think you exercised your right to a religious belief because I don't like your choice, and the employer is dismissing a large swath of their population which, to which they have an obligation under federal and state laws and their own internal policies. And then you've got the, the same employer promoting other belief systems. So they're at odds. So you're going to have employees who are subjected to a hostile work environment because they didn't take the COVID vaccine. And an employer is just, for example, is promoting LGBT. And so the employer is going to say, here are the winners and here are the losers. That is inconsistent with federal and state law. And so COVID is, this is a symptom of a problem because employers can't pick winners. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, and, it, and that actually, for the audience, I mean, that fits along a very traditional path of litigation that we've been able to win, uh, you know, traditionally in employment law. So it's mm -hmm. very straightforward. It's not even, it's not even reinventing the wheel here. It's just that it's a, it's a different group maybe that's coming forward with right. it. And, and I think that's where sometimes you might say that the EOC is having a little difficulty with it. I, I'm going to tell you, I, I'm going to tell you something that may uh, hearten you a little bit on this because I have actually had a number of EEOC claims pending. I don't quite know how many right now, but <laughs> maybe 30. And I can tell you that we've had generally had pretty good interaction with the EEOC on this stuff. The, the line level personnel in general do know what the law is, and they do mm -hmm. seem to be open to discussing this issue. Of, as to whether these are proper or improper inquiries into belief and whether this is creating a hostile work environment. The other place, ironically, or interestingly, that it's coming up for us, and I'm sure you probably don't do this, but we've actually been doing a ton of unemployment hearings. 
Okay. No, yeah, know, we don't we don't handle that. We refer I, that out. Yeah. I know this is low yeah. level stuff, but we do low level to high level. We're all over the block. But and the reason we're doing the unemployment hearings is frankly because we represent hundreds of employees who've been fired. Right. You know, we, we had a, we had 170 at Portsmouth down in Southern Ohio. We had 200 here at Children's Hospital. Mm-hmm. So you see, they're all fired. And you know, just as part of our, you know, we also we have the cases filed. One of those is on appeal right now, mm-hmm. uh, but you know we have the cases filed. We're litigating them, but you know when they come to us and say, "Hey, I'm," they they denied my unemployment. You know, well, we're here to help. So I've right. probably done, my guess is fifty unemployment hearings or something mm-hmm. in the last couple of months. But right. but uh, appeal hearings, the, the the you know it takes right. months for those to filter through. And I will say this, I know at the beginning of the year, there were 23,000 unemployment cases backed up in the system as of January. I mean, backed up, not handled, that needed processed. They were so slow. But in the unemployment, in the unemployment appeals, this issue of just cause firing is coming up. And the hearing officers are inquiring about someone's religious beliefs and whether it's consistent, whether they're sincere. I find it really almost in, insulting to me that the employers are have opened up this line of questioning and that we're having to deal with that at an administrative unemployment appeals right. hearing. Well, I will tell you we're winning most of them, though. <laughs> and under the law, you should. And five years ago, I believe that uh, other than woke corporations, Five years ago, the average employer would not have dared to have traveled down this road with an employee. So that begs the question, what changed? The law didn't. Yeah. So tolerance changed and intolerance, it's not tolerance. <laughs> yeah. I, you, I just wrote a phrase now when you said that, because that's exactly my emotional reaction. And, and I, I, it's that simple old well-worn phrase, how dare you? Yes. Yeah. How dare you? That's exactly how I feel with what I'm dealing with, with these employers. How yeah. dare you? And, but, you know, and, you know and, and like I said, I just, you know, I'm not a particularly re- religious person. I mean, my religion literally is your civil rights though. Right. So right. <laughs> how, well, how I dare think, you? I think that the... This negative slant on religious people is the, the same group of people who view that as a negative, in my opinion, are the people who were the ones promoting the vaccine without, without data. So right. you, they are influencing our culture because they negate the religious beliefs of others because they view them as unacceptable all the while they are promoting something they don't even understand which is the covid vaccine so the lack so it's disrespect and ignorance (laughs) and they're the ones who are making the decisions and so it violates you know certainly an employer doesn't have the right to negate sincerely held religious beliefs. And that's not new law. We act like it is, but it's not new law. And and frankly, that's that's so old. 10 years ago, I would have thought that's actually rule 11. 
that is frivolous litigation. Like if you had this series of events without the COVID vaccine, let's separate that because that's, we want to call that science. If you had this discussion about sincerely held religious beliefs on any other topic, 10 years ago, if I was representing an organization who had a manager doing that, I would say you are, you know, first of all, I would have to say, I can't represent a client who's going to be hiring people who are, you know, running around roughshod over, over religious beliefs, but it would be unthinkable. So if I, so, and if somebody had, you know, the defense of that, I mean, how, how would you as an employer defend that behavior 10 years ago? But it is actually now commonplace because cultures change, the law hasn't. Yeah, yeah. When you say Rule 11, what what, are, what exactly are you talking? How Frivolous, would you use Rule 11 on this? Well, so in my mind, in Rule 11, if I if I had a client who, I mean, there's there's a, you have to have a legal reason for doing what you're doing. Now, obviously, you right. get a client who, you know, the first time you have a a bad set of facts, but I would not be I would not want to be defending a client who had a repetitive behavior by management because you have to have a legitimate reason factually for your defense and you have to have a legitimate legal reason. And I don't, when I look at 10 years down the road, how could I advise an employer that the behavior today by management has a factual or legal basis? So I would not want to be the lawyer representing those organizations. I mean, I'm just, I'm literally thinking this through for our cases. So you're thinking that <laughs> even their defenses, you think I could do a, potentially a rule 11 sanction depending on what defenses they raise? I, I would take the position, this has been around so long. Yeah. <laughs> this law is, is set in stone. We inherited it. We didn't create it. I'm the one who usually gets the rule 11 sanction okay. motions against me. I've got to change not, my head. Around. Okay. I would not be comfortable representing an organization who in, invasively harassed, but by policy, harassed their own employees. So I would not want to be the lawyer because there's the, the aspect rule 11 applies individually to the client and the employee. I'm sorry, the client and the attorney. Yeah. So I would not want to be making the argument that I that there was a good faith belief that this was acceptable. Maybe I'm conservative, but I would be very uncomfortable with that in the realm of religion. The same way I would be uncomfortable if you had management sexually harassing employees by policy. Right. I know that's exactly what I, yeah. Right. That's right. Or, or that you are racist in your, by policy. So I would, I would not want to be sitting in those depositions and being the one who was on the pleadings and having that sworn testimony come out and how long, who, who was involved in the creation of those policies and how did management feel it had liberty to, engage in this dialogue, never mind, and then ultimately terminate people. Now, I can say certainly in the in the event of the pandemic, 
early on, there's a rational discussion you can have about a reaction to the pandemic because people were had possibly reason to think that the government was was acting with information. We now know it didn't. So I can understand that employers early on thought we have to do this because we're going to get OSHA complaints. And so their reaction was driven by the fear of litigation. Well, we're two years down the road and given like the, the things that come in today, like for example, the, the gentleman who called us from University of Texas, how does an organization where the governor's executive order is over a year old and it directly relates to healthcare operations, how does an organization actually tell a guy that he can't he can't do a clinical and without just a, a blanket denial in in Texas how does that happen yeah well let me it's funny how you know you're talking about the cases that you guys have handled and I feel like my little firm of six attorneys has really run down a parallel track because you know we've started out with the shutdowns we're handling the employment we're handling the transplants We've got a young pediatrician just last week called us. He got hired right out of, you know, right after completing his residency, he got hired. They just fired him. Right. Hired and fired because he wasn't vaxxed. And I've got, a, I've got a young firefighter who just got fired this week, wasn't vaxxed, couldn't get four hours in an ER. And I've got a doctor that we defended down at Kettering Health. He was in the midst of his residency. We, were, we won that case. That's the Bobay versus Wright State university case here in Ohio. So, I mean, it just feels like we've been running down these parallel tracks and I'm right. so pleased to get to, get to know who's <laughs> running down these tracks with me, by the way. <laughs> well, we just got a call this week from a gentleman who is a, I guess he's a travel nurse and he got a job with the VA, relocated. Mm. And now because he doesn't have a vaccine, like this couldn't, no one's foresee this conversation. And now he's out of a job. And so the, I don't understand how organizations are this disorganized. The VA is really tough, by the way. We've also dealt with, we've dealt with probably everything, it seems like at this point, but we've dealt with the VA situations very tough. I've got both a patient who's trying to get treatment and I've got a nurse who didn't want to take the shot and she was isolated and, and we've done all kinds of, you know, you have a special processes in the VA to do your right. deal. So now, I wasn't all that familiar with it before because I'd never dealt with the VA, but, you know, she can't seem to get help and we're trying to do everything we can to help her. And we've tried to work through some of those appeals with her, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's a very difficult process. So if you know someone who's an expert at the VA process, I, I'm sure <laughs> like to have their phone number. I was going to ask you the same thing. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Oh, no. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, and that is one of the things that, that's happening, though. And, and, you know, one of the things that I see, like I've reached out to very good employment law attorneys that I know, friends of mine. Mm -hmm. And I've said, I have got this wonderful case because all of these folks who, who've been fired, I mean, I got to tell you, they have the best work histories. I've, I've, you know, because we're mm -hmm. it's being challenged in unemployment. I'm looking at their files perfect work histories, perfect attendance records, you know, very devoted to their organizations. We have ended up firing from our military, our corporations, our, our medical institutions, some of the best 
employees that I've ever seen. And I've done employment law off and on throughout my career. And, you know, always in the past, I would get an employment case and I'd be like, ah, you know, okay, I, this sounds good, but when's that other shoe going to drop? Right. I can tell you, I've never seen cleaner files in my life. These files are pristine. These were perfect employees down at Smuckers and down at Portsmouth and the military guys who have come in out of Wright-Patterson. Right. You know, they're incredibly good employees. And it's the healthcare workers that have come in. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Every day at work, not sick. Not, you know, they're not, you know, they're, they're, but yet now we're purging them from our system. We're purging them from everywhere. Well, and you think about the North Shore settlements that my colleagues got recently. Part of the terms of those settlement is that employees can actually become reemployed. That will be, and that class, I believe, is up to 500. So that's going to be an interesting component of this is when those deadlines pass and we find out who chose to do what and how, what does that look like? down the road you know it's going to be interesting to see how the employer has to capitulate yeah let me ask you about north shore because they got a lot of attention obviously from my healthcare people here because we've got a couple hundred at children's hospital that got fired mm-hmm. when i looked at the north shore docket i you know, it, it seemed like it was like North Shore did come to the table fairly quickly. I mean, in terms of legal issues. From a timing, yes. The yes. other thing that I saw with North Shore is that they really had no process. It was like an across the board denial of the exemptions. So maybe you could fill the audience in a little bit on this North Shore Hospital. Okay, stuff. so I was involved in the EEOC phase of that. So I we had initially 14 employees. So I was involved in that. And then obviously the number got far greater. They tried to avail themselves of the religious exemption and, and the process did was modified over time, but it ultimately was you, as the pleadings reflect, that you there were no accommodations. So there was just a deadline given. And so that was, that was the genesis of, of that lawsuit. And I don't know how in Chicago, the EEOC is going to handle all of those claims. You know, so we know many people are hundreds of people, thousands of people were filing, but how is the EEOC going to manage this? So they're all going to get right to sues. There won't be determinations. I mean, this is just my prediction. Yeah. So at the end of the day, and I was not involved in the litigation aspect, but there was defense counsel. And then once the class developed, then class counsel was brought in. And that's reflected, obviously, in the pleadings. And so from the filing date to the resolution dates, there was it, it, that is quick for a class case in nationwide. <laughs> In any, in any realm of employment law. Can you give us some insight into why it moved quickly? <laughs> well, I, you, I think you've articulated why. <laughs> there were denials without yeah. any individualized assessment. Right. <laughs> yeah, and I, that's what I've said to, to my clients here is that, you know, it is a little different here. We have had individualized assessments. Uh, you know, it's terrible what Children's Hospital did here, and it's ridiculous what they did, but you know, it's a more complex argument and we're not going to be able to move through as quickly 
Yes, right. for sure. In my view, we're, we're which, pending in district court, right? Which, now. to a certain extent, is a we can give accolades to the employer who actually conducted somewhat of an individualized approach, because that is required yeah. under the law. So I I agree. The outcome, you know, the outcome is debatable because then that's going to be an individualized assessment as to whether that was necessary. Could it have been accommodated? From an employment standpoint, as someone who used to represent employers, that's going to be, you know, you're going to have to look at an org chart and say, where, where could you have moved these people? And it's going to be like an ADA analysis. You know, you're, how could you have reasonably accommodated them? What I wonder in these cases is, and this is where I see a huge Achilles heel for employers, because I think we all know the answers. Who's the decision maker? It's all the managers are going to say, I was told to do this. So the deposition, you know, the, the 30B6, the, the corporate rep deposition at the end of the day is going to be, my job was on the line. I didn't make an individualized assessment. I did what I was told to do. So then if I were a plaintiff's lawyer, I would then go up the food chain. And ultimately, how does that work out for an employer? when you've got a fairly significant senior executive making the decision or creating a structure that intimidates the managers who were supposed to make that assessment. So those are gonna be interesting depositions. I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> I would like, yeah, I would be very curious to see what policies existed and how the people made their decisions. Well, we're going to have we're going to have a bunch of them here piled up by the end of the year, I think. So it, it's going to get interesting. Yeah. What on the class status? You said you had fourteen in the EO. Did the EO bring them through as a group, or did they go through individually? I was only involved at the outset. They were individual, and I right. don't believe that there was much interaction. What I understood about that process was there was such a delay. Right in the ability to schedule interviews. Right. I, I And I that's what I understand is happening nationwide. The delay right now in Ohio, I'm trying to think, it is approximately, people who got fired in January are just now having their EEO interviews right now. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a six month, maybe a little more delay. That's what we're dealing with here. And I'll tell you the other thing that's happening, they've had to hire independent contractors to as EEO officers. Right because they cannot keep up with the influx. Right. And so the same thing, we saw the same thing happen on unemployment with the 23,000 backload, right. you know, and they started holding hearings as early as 7.30 in the morning and as late as 7.30 at night. They couldn't Maybe fit them all in. Maybe they should redirect those IRS agents that were just hired. <laughs> with the, I, saw, I saw Barry Weiss's <laughs> substack this morning. I guess they're gonna be armed and they're supposed to be physically fit. So. Who are these guys and right. gals, I guess? I, I'm not sure the, govern the government's benevolent at this point, you know? Yeah, so yeah. I think those resources would be better suited dealing with the catastrophe that the government created. Yeah, well, I think everything, look, our systems, you know, we're watching the systems overwhelmed. So unemployment's overwhelmed, EEOC's overwhelmed, the hospitals are breaking down, safety forces are breaking down. Now we're going to have... You know, unfortunately, I think our medical system, A, they fired about, you know, at least five to 10% of their workforce. Right. I saw the number from last year, 500,000 people had left the medical services work 
And I think it's probably doubled since then. We're probably at a million or a million five. I, I, I actually would like to get that number right now because it's a tremendous damage to the system. Our hospitals here that were harsh about this, such as Children's Hospital, it's a, it's a complete disaster over there right. in terms of their functioning. And, well, and not only that, let me tell you this, Children's Hospital just came out with a policy that the boosters are going to be mandatory for the ones that remain. They're going to lose more employers, right. employees, I'm sorry. I, I don't know what they think the end game is with attrition. I, I don't, and so what are they going to do? Increase the perks to get people? I already know what they're doing. They're advertising in the Philippines for Filipina nurses that will come in under special visa that essentially they can be fired at any time and sent shipped back to the Philippines. So it's almost a, you know, to me, it's almost a quasi slavery type situation that they want to have with their healthcare personnel. So they're going to hire from overseas to come in and fill the gaps. I mean, that's, that's what I think is going to happen. That that's what I've seen happening out there already. Right. So, just so you know. <laughs> well, but they can't fill all of their positions like that. So, I mean, that's that's a nurse. That's a nursing, as I understand that relationship that that is permitted under state state laws. Mm -hmm. The credentialing for that, and I don't know that you can supply all of your healthcare needs from overseas. <laughs> Well, I think our state legislature, at least I hope, is going to be looking at these, these issues and, and blocking some of what's happening. So we do have some people who are working very hard in the state legislature here that, that I think can help us quite a bit. Well, I will say on a COVID-related note, as it relates to the transplants patients, I have seen some success. I'm, I'm not going to attribute it to all of the demand letters we've sent. I think there has been a change in the reaction by certain organizations in the last 12 months that the conversation has shifted. So what started out as an outright denial because you're not vaccinated, then we moved the conversation to, we started out with religious exemption, which basically got tabled. No one wanted to say no, but they just didn't put you back on the list. Then we went, the conversation shifted where possible to a medical exemption. And now the conversation for many of my patients has moved to natural immunity because everyone's had COVID. Right, right. So, so I, I see that the ducks are in a row and you have to attack this and they, they've been beaten back. Like not that, to say that there's a quick victory in any of these because We've only been involved in the transplant cases since last December because we had people calling us. And so we they started trickling in and now we've we've got over, we've got almost 60 oh my patients. Gosh. So in the process of these seven, eight months now, we've had very few victories on the religious issue alone because they didn't have to and because they thought the science was in their favor because they were just capitulating to the CDC. And I don't mean that they would say it was capitulating. But now that the science has disproved in many instances what they were representing about the efficacy or the benefits of the COVID vaccine, you've got you've we can make inroads on medical issues. 
And in addition to that, the COVID vaccine is unsafe for people who already have the antibodies. And there's information on that. So the conversation that we've had with these facilities, it was an adamant no early on. And I had a client, a patient, I won't name the, the hospital, which is a top 10 school as well, but I won't name it because we're in the middle of a trying to resolve some issues. There, the patient, you know, because I contact the general counsel and then there's, they've got ongoing patient relationships. So I'm not in the middle of that. So there's, I'll get a no on the religious exemption. And then I'll go back and say, hey, we're not done with our conversation. Here's the medical issues. And then I go back a third time and say, we're still not done because now I want to raise the natural immunity issue. So one victory, which again, I don't attribute to us specifically, I just think it's, this is the tide and there's just so many people opposing them. I had a patient call me and I've got two patients at the same facility. I had a patient let me know that several physicians in the transplant realm actually said, oh, it's not required. So even though I didn't get a response to my myriad of letters, you know, the practical impact of one that had said emphatically no, and frankly is on the short list for a lawsuit, which we would be handling with, we refer those out to Pacific Justice. So we handle all of the interaction with the facilities. And then if the answer is no, and Pacific Justice has given the thumbs up to do litigation, we've already filed, they filed one against University of Michigan, and I won't name the next one because I think it's going to be filed this week or next week. So, so we've got a list of maybe six or seven facilities that we anticipate litigation. And then we'll see where that goes from, from there. But I have, I've seen the conversation evolve from an outright denial to I now have a back and forth over the natural immunity issue. So nobody respected the religious, right? Right. This, right? And, and, you know, and again, I can give someone grace for that at the outset of a pandemic. But when the site when the studies start showing up in multiple countries that this this is not beneficial and in fact the vaccine makes you more susceptible <laughs> to the condition, you know, and then when you've got antibodies, you can you can have conversations that you couldn't have had when you made the initial application. The other thing I would say is a few facilities including one this week from Colorado, I believe. I have been told it's not just your it's not just your client's religious objection to the COVID vaccine. It's your client you need your client needs to tell us whether they agree to a monoclonal antibody. And the only one of the facilities has named it, and it's Ebusheld, which is yeah. uh, which is FDA or EUA approved from the FDA in December. So of course, they provided no information. So I'm trying to have a conversation with my client about something that has the same issues, fetal cell lines, yeah. as the original ones. So the first organization who brought that into the equation, which they hadn't disclosed early on, certainly and all of this occurred months after the Ebusheld was approved. So... The first time I had this conversation with a facility, they said, well, we can't accommodate your client's religious exemption request because it's not just one vaccine, it's two. It's the pre-transplant 
vaccination and the post-transplant vaccination. So that, that because Abby Shell will be post-transplant. Mm. So, and they require it. And so, and again, it's now something that they have on their litmus test. So I got that from another facility this week and my client's antibodies are off the chart. So it's not safe for my clients pre-transplant the vaccine, nor is there any indication whenever he does get a transplant, we don't now know. They want him to commit that he will take a monoclonal antibody at some unforeseen time in the future. And how can I, so that's that's not even strictly a religious exemption issue. This is, a, this is an informed consent issue. Mm-hmm. My client can't consent to something that is undefined presently. Mm-hmm. Wow. The Ebushiel, does that have fetal cell lines involved? Yes. Oh, yes. Does. Okay. Yep. And I, I will send you a link to that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll tell you what, I would love to, if, if you could send me that complaint, I would love to see it. What's the basis of the lawsuit against University of Michigan? Okay. So I would have to defer to Dave Peters on this because this is a Michigan law. Okay. That they've referenced. And, and frankly, the court it's in is somewhat of an anomaly too, because they've got a different procedure there. Oh. But I will send that to you. And the next one that's coming up actually has some state law implications, because in that particular state, which is Pennsylvania, there is a health conscience statute, which I would liken to what Tennessee has, uh, which is why Vanderbilt does not require the COVID vaccine, because yeah. there's a Tennessee statute. And I would argue that it's the same analysis as as in Texas. Yeah. We have a constitutional amendment circulating in Ohio, a right to refuse any and all mm-hmm. medical treatment. Okay. Uh, so it's we've narrowed it to that for various reasons. But, mm-hmm. you know, the negative seems like that had the cleanest chance of passage. And it, it right. got the language got approved in May and it's circulating right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have the steel case. I mean, I think we actually have pretty good case law in Ohio. So I, I'd be interested in looking at whether the, the basis in Michigan and Pennsylvania are analogous to what I think our case law tells okay. us in Ohio. Well, I should be able to send you both complaints okay. because I believe the Pennsylvania one's done. And what my question would be is, I think we've got some Ohio patients. Maybe we could we could share information and we could yeah. all have different lawsuits. Well, I, have, I have some twins, they're genetic twins. I, I don't know if you saw the story, but they're genetic twins both in their 50s, and one needs a kidney from the other. Okay. And Cleveland Clinic won't do it. And, you know, the thing about it is that kills me is they've been in treatment at Cleveland Clinic, trusted Cleveland Clinic, had these doctors, these relationships, were ready to go. And, oh, now because they don't want vaccinated, which the twin who has the, who needs the kidney thinks it'll clot up her, you know, clot right. her system up and has some serious medical concerns about it, as, as well as religious concerns. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I get it. I wouldn't, if I were getting ready to go into surgery, the last thing I want is a, right. a, an injection of something that has known clotting characteristics. Now, did you see that survey that came out? I may have sent it to you previously. It came out in January or February, and it, it was a retrospective of... They, and it was just a survey. So we're not talking about a peer-reviewed study, yeah. but it was on tr- 200 transplant centers. And they, so this group, and it's published, and, I, I, and so it, it is a reputable survey. I've gotten 
when I bring this survey up to facilities, because it shows that over 50% of the transplant centers in this country do not require the vaccine. Oh, wow. By definition, doesn't that, does, is, is that not an obstacle that's insurmountable to these facilities? I mean, that data, how do you say it's necessary? How do you say there's an agreement collectively on that? Yeah. So, but, you know, th and that data is out there and nobody wants to talk about it. I would like to see that. I, I mean, here's what's happening right now. The Donaldsons, who you probably know about, are Ohioans. Yep. And I think that they are in process of getting their surgery scheduled in Columbus. At least I hope so. I had talked to them last year. And then the Johnson sisters, likewise, that's the same thing that's happening. Steve Kirch actually reached out and sent us a list of places and some okay. people have stepped up after the story came out. So, you know, I'm actually, and they do need the surgery fairly soon. I mean, she's right. got limited time. So one of the things for me is, well, do we, do we sue the Cleveland Clinic and all that that entails, mm -hmm. or do we just try to get her her surgery? You, you know what I mean? And then what so, happens if yeah. she gets her surgery and, you know, then the judges, of course, they're going to come in and say it's moot. Right. But, I, you know. So I start out every conversation and every confirmation of the initial conversation saying, here are the facilities that we know that our patients have been able to go to that have not had a vax battle. And I would say of the nearly 60 people we have, probably 30% have chosen that route. Yeah. Right. And we've got, uh, I think, two people from Illinois going to Texas to do liver and kidney, and they're probably going to be scheduled for right this month. Right. And then someone reached out to me through Pacific Justice the other day, and I forget what state she was in. And I started out that initial email. I sent her the list of hospitals and she had already heard about Medical City in Texas. And so I think it's interesting to me because some of these hospitals, there's going to be a boondoggle <laughs> transplant patients. And that's capitalism yeah. in science at its best. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's how I see it. So yes, there's, a, there's, you know, it's a shame from a legal standpoint that the, the urgency and the perspectives and perhaps claims are, are no longer available. But at the end of the day, people have chosen medical care that they wanted. Yeah, yeah. Well, Deborah, I have taken up an hour of your valuable time this morning, so I greatly appreciate you getting on here. Absolutely. This and uh, we didn't really plan an outline for this conversation, but we have two really distinct topics that I think you've covered wonderfully. Thank you. Um, the lastly, this transplant, but firstly, this issue with the discrimination in the workplace. So it, it is so appreciated. I think that uh, people are going to enjoy listening to this conversation we've had. Well, I think there's some interesting case law that's going to be unfolding. Um, and I see the tension being opposing religious rights and elevating other causes. And, and the employers are going to get themselves right in the middle of that. And, you know, there's going to be some interesting cases that come out. Deborah, I just want to thank you so much. And thanks for all the great work that Liberty Council is doing and the great information you've shared with our listeners today, both about employment law 
and the transplant issues.